Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into the mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, joining you in this moment so we can remember together that real wisdom is dangerous, but it's the direct, unconventional path to success and the good life for all. Dangerous wisdom can heal us and the world at the same time. Today we return to the contemplation of apocalyptic love wisdom. We're going to go a little deeper. We have our intentions set on living better, loving better, helping the world, making a difference. We want a life of meaning and purpose. If we want to arrive at a significant revelation about healing ourselves and the world, We can improve our chances vastly by confronting our fears. In our last contemplation, we tried to sense a need for compassion in relation to our fears. Maybe if we become totally enlightened, we can experience freedom from fear on the basis of wisdom and consummatory insight into the nature of reality. But for all of us on this side of that kind of enlightenment, we experience fear. As a sensitive psychologist who had many clients to learn from, Carl Jung saw this aspect of the psyche at work in both individuals and the culture at large. In his essay on the archetypes of the collective unconscious, Jung writes, quote, Whether primitive or not, Humankind always stands on the brink of actions. It performs itself, but does not control. The whole world wants peace, and the whole world prepares for war, to take but one example. Humankind is powerless against humankind and the gods, as ever, show it in the ways of fate. Today we call the gods factors, which comes from facere, to make. The makers stand behind the wings of the world theater. It is so in great things as in small. In the realm of consciousness, We are our own masters. We seem to be the factors themselves. But if we step through the door of the shadow, we discover with terror that we are the objects of unseen factors. To know this is decidedly unpleasant, for nothing is more disillusioning than the discovery of our own inadequacy. It can even give rise to primitive panic, because instead of being believed in, the anxiously guarded supremacy of consciousness is questioned in the most dangerous way. I really love that passage. It may not at first seem scary to seriously contemplate the powers that live themselves through us. But those who have experienced such things often experience fear. In large part, in our context, this occurs because we lack a way of life that can prepare us for and help us skillfully integrate experiences that we would currently, culturally, label as anomalous, supernormal, even insane. We tend to write them off, explain them away, repress, ignore, deride, ridicule. Now, none of this is abstract. We're talking about something totally intimate and practical. This has to do with 
with our very psyche, with the nature of reality, and with the ways we deceive ourselves, limit ourselves, and cause harm to ourselves and others. We want to try and find out how we could liberate and heal ourselves and our world, how we can realize the meaning of our life, and how we can fulfill our highest potential. Now let's continue with Jung. This idea of the dangerous questioning of consciousness that fits with dangerous wisdom, doesn't it? He's confronting the danger directly rather than accidentally the way our culture so often does. Now here's what Jung writes in that same essay. Since ignorance is no guarantee of security, and in fact only makes our insecurity still worse, it is probably better, despite our fear, to know where the danger lies. To ask the right question is already half the solution of a problem. At any rate, we then know that the greatest danger threatening us comes from the unpredictability of the psyche's reactions. Discerning persons have realized for some time that external historical conditions of whatever kind are only occasions, jumping-off grounds for the real dangers that threaten our lives. These are the present politico-social delusional systems. We should not regard them causally as necessary consequences of external conditions, but as decisions precipitated by the collective unconscious. I like that passage too. That's such a wonderful criticism of our situation. It's a diagnosis. And it reminds us that our contemplation together has global significance. When we look at structures of power and domination that constrain our lives, when we look at the whole pattern of insanity as it appears in politics, economics, and our relationship with ourselves, each other, and nature, we see these decisions made by us that Jung is talking about. And it's particularly intense right now with this absolutely insane conflict going on in Ukraine. Can we even call it conflict? We just have to say violent insanity. And so these are decisions precipitated by the collective unconscious. That's what Jung is telling us. It, he's saying, scrutinize your psyche. We, we all look at this in horror, what's happening in Ukraine or what's happening with the extinction of species. Whatever thing seems most alive to you as a real suffering in the world, a wound that you feel and you carry the suffering of it with you, how does it happen? And Jung is saying, well, there is a danger in the psyche. We have to confront that danger and know it. If we look at war zones, sacrifice zones, if we look at oil spills and landfills, if we look at the plastic in the oceans and the human beings in prisons, if we look at the massive inequality and the massive number of stupid jobs, we see our own collective psyche. There's plastic in our blood now and in our lungs. Have you heard about this? Why do we have plastic in our blood and in our lungs, deep in our lungs? One way to answer that very complex question is to ask, are we afraid of our life without plastic? Now you might, as an experiment, look carefully at your own life over the next week or so and see how much plastic you come into contact with, how much plastic you depend on for the way you now live your life. And sense the part of you that might cling to that plastic, cling so deeply 
that it's just got to get into you. That's not an easy experiment because we might not even see all the plastic in our lives. It lines food wrappers, coffee cups, even tin cans. There's plastic in there. It may say BPA-free, but it's plastic. And it may be worse for you than the BPA that was there before. We use plastic for medical equipment. Parts of our cars and our computers and our phones are made of plastic. Of course, our clothing may have plastic in it. Our life with plastic goes together with our fear of life itself. Isn't that strange? But we could begin to sense that. We find the wildness of life a bit scary. And Freud went so far as to say that the whole point of civilization is to protect us from nature. What a horrifying thought. We live here. We come from here, from nature. We are nature. And yet we treat it as other. And not only other, but frightening other, scary, dirty, too hard to deal with. We'd rather have plastic. We'd rather have everything risk-free. So if it's not plastic, we'll pave over it. We'll pave over or plastic over or paint over anything that looks dangerous or difficult. We put up fences and walls to try and keep nature out of our business. We shoot wolves just as we used to shoot horses because they refuse to acknowledge our deluded carving up and paving over of the world. The rancher may seem to hate the wolf, but often when we look underneath our hatred, we find fear. The big bad wolf has long tortured conquest consciousness, the style of consciousness that now pervades the world. We're talking there about the style of consciousness that the dominant culture encourages. We get educated into this consciousness, seduced, indoctrinated. It's not something we see, but something that creates everything we see. We see everything filtered through a mind out of attunement with reality. And this contributes to the questions that we might raise around the ethics of consciousness. The style of consciousness creates reality, and so we, start, we need to start taking care of the style of consciousness we have. And we'll talk more about the ethics of consciousness some other time, but here's maybe the freakiest thing we want to consider in this regard. We want to seriously consider how it is and why it is that reality itself seems to induce terror in us, even in the most rational, sober, or passionate among us. Now, some of us, maybe many of us, may think we want the truth, and I think in the soul there is an impulse to know. So we do have a passion for insight and understanding and wisdom and love and beauty. But the person who's saying, I want to know, that's not the whole soul speaking, that's a part. So there's some part of us that says that it, I want to see things as they really are. I want the truth. I want some kind of mystical or spiritual experience or whatever it might be that we think we want that is reality, that's truth and seeing the truth. But claiming to want these things, even passionately believing we want those things, doesn't mean that another part of us doesn't fear them. Perhaps with an intense fear. How can we function well if we don't attune ourselves with reality? And how do we attune ourselves with reality if we fear reality, or at least some aspect of it. Now, we all act on the basis of what we think of as real. We often think we're being realistic. But maybe we all fear the truth. And maybe the truth we fear 
differs for each of us a little bit or maybe a lot. Maybe it differs a lot because if we don't know it and yet we're still afraid of it, then we don't even know what we're afraid of. So each of us would put it in a different way. Now, however we think about that aspect, if we don't confront our fears and other psychic material that we might repress or suppress, we will continue on in an unskillful and unrealistic path even while we're claiming that we're being very realistic, which is one of the things that happens in the political theater, right, that plays off of, it's that set of circumstances Jung was talking about. So the political theater and the business theater, we have people telling us again and again about how they're being very realistic and responsible. It's nonsense. They're afraid. Anytime we look at the world and we see something tragic and we wonder, How could this happen? That's the question we're trying to inquire into together right now. To try to better understand ourselves and the nature of reality. So we're looking at war and saying, how could this possibly happen? And we might even begin to think to ourselves, Of course there must be a fear. What else could be keeping us away from looking at reality and solving some of these very basic existential problems that we face as individuals, as a culture, as a global community of life? Now we're thinking about all this because it's essential to understand that our contemplation has it has to do with far more than curious or anomalous phenomena which we consider for very specific reasons. We're not here to entertain ourselves because our contemplation has to do with our lives together. It has to do with the world we share and these major problems that we face and and our great potentials that we could unleash. Our contemplation has to do with daily life, with seemingly mundane affairs as well as with more momentous or expansive views, practices, experiences, events in our lives. The strange phenomena we consider sometimes serve to sensitize us to our own deeply held fears and confusions. Something about the nature of reality seems to freak us out. And we can get downright stubborn and even hostile when any belief we cling to gets threatened. And sometimes we, we're looking through, we're looking down our nose as if we really know. And we, have, we are not afraid anymore. We have seen the reality because whatever it might be. It might be our material success, our spiritual, apparent superior, spiritual achievements. So we look together here at the heart of conflict and suffering and the degradation of the world that happens because of our ignorance and fear. It takes a great deal of courage to challenge our own beliefs. And it seems we really have an obligation to sincerely, freshly ask ourselves if we will go on limiting ourselves mainly because of fear. Why do we continue to degrade the world? People do this and they know they're doing it. We continue to pollute our own air, water, and soil to fight wars, to let inequality persist. It seems crazy. Why would we do these things? And doesn't it make sense to ask whether or not we might do this in large part, maybe, because of fear we have about doing something different? maybe even a fear of doing something better. We seem to have a fear of doing what some part of us may already know we need to do. And we also seem to have a fear of letting ourselves know things we need to know, but we currently don't know at all, you know, not even a part of us. But it's there waiting yet to be known, you see, 
and we keep ourselves away from knowing it. We keep ourselves from listening deeply to the sacred and listening deeply to the whole community of life so we can hear what the mystery itself wants to do through us. We could put it that way. We're listening to what all our relations in this world need us to do. We have our own agenda, and that's part of why we don't want to listen, because we might feel very excited about our agenda. Look how great it's going, and we have all the evidence of our success and the importance of this agenda we're on. And we don't see that fear and clinging block us, and that the fear and clinging that blocks us may arise at such a deep level in the psyche that that's why we don't see it. So again, some, some of this might be unconscious, or it might be that we do experience the fear on some conscious level, but the causes remain largely unconscious. And some of that fear may get evoked by glimpses of a reality that transcends the deeply held beliefs we have about what we are and what the cosmos is. And I have to keep emphasizing this contrast in how we might consciously feel, because, of course, sometimes we really recognize that we're, we're a little afraid, that we don't know, for instance, what we should really do with our lives. We're not sure. And that's so healthy. See, Socrates would be so happy with us if we would just say, you know, I'm not sure and I'm a little scared. And he would say, that's really good, because, you know, most of us just aren't wise enough to be doing the things that we do. Because the things we do have such an impact and we don't have enough wisdom, really, to take responsibility for those impacts. So we need to slow down and think together, take care of each other, recognize that we, there's so much more that we don't know. Collectively, human beings think, say, and do a lot of unhelpful, unskillful, and even tragic things, ultimately because of ignorance and fear. And our fear functions as a force, then, that affects all life on earth. Human fear affects all life on earth. And the basic operating system of the dominant culture drives cultural activity on the basis of both hope and fear, or we could say craving and fear, or clinging and fear. We have made fear and craving and distraction and confusion a basic business model. In some cases, that appears explicitly, as it does, for instance, in marketing agencies which also, of course, includes political campaigns. So politics functions that way. And it's definitely what marketing and propaganda focus on. Both corporations and our government rely on craving and fear. And you've probably seen this if you've been on LinkedIn or anywhere else and people trying to tell you how to market your services and talking about pain points and talking about the benefits and all this. It's all about figuring out what fears we can create in an audience or what fears they already have that we can tap into and evoke and then we have the solution, don't worry, or what cravings they have or that we could create or tap into. So if you don't have the fear, they'll make one for you. And we see it everywhere. And of course, there's the, the craving part we see too because it's all shiny and we're suppo- we get really excited, we want the new thing. And that's partly because it pacifies our fear while we're distracted. So the corporations and government deliberately try to exploit our suffering, including our real pain, and our confusion, our depression, our anxiety, our self-doubts, our addictions. Most companies have this encumbered psychology as their very business model, and that's something we really have to confront, because think of what that means about our ecology in one way or another that businesses operate on, on this basis. Many of them. It's not every single one, but many. Even with a rationalization that they're doing something good. You know, because if we, if we think, well, if I can just let, acknowledge the client's fears, 
and then I'll show how I can solve them, but we're just playing around with fear. How many companies do work that focuses really on reducing fear and craving, period? Reducing distraction and boredom, period. Reducing ignorance and self-doubt. Not, I can solve this one problem for you, but let's look at the problem of fear. Not, I can solve this set of problems for you, but let's look at the problem of craving. What do you really think you're going to get once you get this? Okay, so so I solve all your problems and you're rich now. Are you going to be done with fear and craving? That's not a problem that's addressed. And you say, well, it's not for businesses. Well, what are they for? We live in a real world with real problems. At the bottom of those problems, fear, craving, ignorance, distraction. What are we bothering for if we don't start thinking about these things more carefully? How many things that people sell us and how many campaigns for selling it actively reduce Fear and craving, period. Or ignorance. I mean, my goodness. Are we even interested in knowledge when we're buying and selling things? Or just appearance? And you can see, look how terrible it was the way it seems that even human beings get treated like machines, right? We see this in Amazon, 150% turnover rate. We see how Bruce Willis was in something like 20 movies in four years, and people apparently knew that there were real problems. And, but no one was, everyone was afraid to tell investors, everyone was afraid to acknowledge the problem. So it wasn't about knowledge, it wasn't about compassion or taking care of or to, any reality. But can we make more money off of this guy? So please correct me if those stories aren't true, but it certainly is part of how business gets done. We cover over imperfections because we're afraid. The Challenger disaster. Everybody was afraid to speak up. That was the space shuttle that exploded, for people who don't remember that. How many things that people sell us actively promote peace in ourselves and the world, really? And even if we can think of some examples of companies offering seemingly nice products, how many things that people sell us would be necessary in a culture rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty? If our culture rooted itself in peace, well-being, wisdom, care, and some of our other most precious values, how much currently for sale would no longer be for sale? How many jobs that currently exist would no longer exist in that kind of culture? And these things go completely together. As we speak about fear, we naturally refer also to this whole complex of craving, boredom, distraction, confusion, and all these negative problems that we see in our world. And when we focus on fear, we can see that the system has to keep fear active in order to keep so many of us in bondage. We may fancy ourselves free, and, and thus we keep ourselves in, in bondage, just by this notion that I'm free, right, when we're not. Or we might sense our lack of freedom, but worried that we have no way out. We don't know what to do. And so we're afraid. The culture actively uses fear to keep us trapped. And our own unconscious patterns will collude with the culture by short-circuiting attempts to see into reality if those attempts get too close to anything that feels threatening. So if the system has delusions in it, it doesn't want you to know reality. It has to operate on the basis of delusion to keep itself going. If we leave our fear in the shadow by denying it in any way or giving up on it, then we make liberation harder for everyone. Moreover, we perpetuate conflict if we forget that the people seemingly in conflict with us have fear in them too. They are just like us. Now, some people may not experience much fear because of some biological accident. Nevertheless, we should understand that fear in general connects us with countless sentient beings who also experience fear, not just human beings. And for most human beings, fear is no small matter in our lives. For instance, we so fear 
discomfort, that we will avoid doing things we know we should do because it might result in discomfort. It might not even be a big discomfort. It just, eh, I don't want to do that. We can fear rejection so much that we hide our feelings from others. And yet the experience of rejection can't possibly compare with the experience of having our sense of reality obliterated. You see, I'm saying that if we are afraid of even these little discomforts, think how much fear we would have of our very sense of reality getting disrupted. I'm afraid I'll be late to the meeting, my goodness, and someone will yell at me. Then think how afraid we might be to see something about reality that totally ruptures our sense of what reality is, maybe our sense even of identity and agency. And so we consider that kind of extreme fear in order to understand our whole existential situation. It just highlights something. And it hopefully can allow us to think more deeply. Because you, you may remember from the last contemplation, for instance, there was a, a soldier who had been to Vietnam and thought that he really knew fear because of the things that he saw at, in, in the middle of war. Of course, that must have been scary. But then, no, when his re- sense of reality got challenged, that was a fear unlike any he had ever had. And so we look at these anomalous phenomena and this deep existential fear so that we can just become more fully aware of fear and look into its nature and begin to liberate the energy of fear so that it could become more helpful and begin to uh, prepare ourselves to try to see reality instead of just clinging to our beliefs about it. And if we continue to educate ourselves about the nature of mind and the mind of nature, if we keep inquiring into the true nature of self and world, we will feel less fearful of reality. And as the great mystery begins to offer itself to us with greater intimacy, we can simultaneously begin to offer ourselves to the mystery in mutuality. That's what can happen. As the fear goes down, the mystery moves in, and we move forward toward the mystery in a mutual embrace. Now, continuing this basic theme, we might turn to some reflections from the philosopher Aldous Huxley. In the introduction to his collection on the perennial philosophy, Huxley does a nice job of relating the spirit of the epistemology of mysticism. Now, epistemology is the fancy word for our theory of knowing, our ideas about what it means to know things. We all live our lives on the basis of what we think we know or what we think we can know, and also what we think we don't know and maybe think we cannot possibly know. In the contemporary context, we have all gotten a big wake-up call about the need for agreement about what we know and what we can know, and what we don't know and what we can't know. We can see the pandemic, as well as the wider political and economic situation, as a crisis in knowing. We don't agree on how to know ourselves and our world And we fight over conflicting views of reality in ways that don't even make any sense. People making arguments about things that they don't have any idea about. Or citing, unfortunately, experts who are questionable. It's such a strange situation. And it's clear that we all need to become better knowers. We need to cultivate better ways of knowing. And many people who are voicing their criticisms are, they would say, oh yes, that's what I'm trying to say. But in the meantime, they have very confused ideas, which they feel very certain about, of course. And so these things go together, becoming better knowers and cultivating better ways of knowing. If we want a litmus test of our way of knowing, we can simply examine ourselves and the world we have made with our current ways of knowing. 
We find a great many anxious and depressed people, a great many stressed and burned out people. We find toxins in our air, water, and soil. We find species going extinct, ecologies unraveling. What does all this say about the way of knowing, our way of knowing ourselves in our world? Nature holds up a mirror to ourselves. But we can also look into an actual mirror or consult the mirror of our awareness. Do we think ourselves so saintly and sagely that we can claim confidence in the way we know the world? Not just confidence in our knowledge, but our way, the way we're going about knowing. Are we truly happy and at peace And do we bring happiness and peace to those we claim to love? Does the world seem healthier and more vitalizing for our presence in it? Can we say we really love the world and that it loves us back? Now these are some of the questions we can begin to ask. Huxley brings together the spirit of such questions with this spirit of mystical philosophy, which doesn't mean something, you know, woo-woo. Remember that if we are if we get rigorous philosophically mystical just means you have to experience it for yourself you a, a mystic is a person who wants to know for themselves the word comes from a person who has been initiated so a, a mystis was a person who was initiated and of course there are nuances to what it means they're also a person who um, maybe has been silenced by what they have seen because it was so astounding and inconceivable or maybe silenced because they know everybody else also has to experience it for themselves and it can't be explained and also therefore shouldn't we shouldn't try. But the basic meaning is that someone who is initiated into an experience of reality, direct and intimate, no more beliefs. And of course a real mystic knows that this is not just one glimpse, that we ha- it's a consummatory experience, it's not an ordinary experience. And we may need many repetitions to really break through. But here's Huxley writing about the spirit of mystical philosophy and how it goes together with the spirit of these questions we were asking. Now, here's what he writes. Quote, knowledge is a function of being. When there is a change in the being of the knower, there is a corresponding change in the nature and amount of knowing. For example, the being of a child is transformed by growth and education into that of a man, for instance. Among the results of this transformation is a revolutionary change in the way of knowing and the amount and character of the things known. As the individual grows up, Their knowledge becomes more conceptual and systematic in form, and its factual utilitarian content is enormously increased. But these gains are offset by a certain deterioration in the quality of immediate apprehension, a blunting and a loss of intuitive power. Or consider the change in his being, which the scientist is able to induce mechanically by means of his instruments. Equipped with a spectroscope and a 60-inch reflector, an astronomer becomes, so far as eyesight is concerned, a superhuman creature. And, as we should naturally expect, the knowledge possessed by this superhuman creature is very different, both in quantity and quality, from that which can be acquired by a stargazer with unmodified, merely human eyes. I'm going to pause there because there's just a lot going on in that passage, and it's just beautifully done. It's just direct and simple. I used to sometimes have a hard time explaining this to my colleagues in the university, this is, this is one of the most important discoveries in the whole history of philosophy now confirmed by our science. And that is that knowledge depends on our way of knowing. It depends on what kind of person we are, too. So altogether, knowledge depends on the knower. That means their whole history, what kind of practice of life, what philosophy of life, what kind of consciousness and maturity and so on have they brought. 
that will determine what they can know and think about the practices of our culture. Is it at all surprising to suggest that there are things we simply cannot know because we're affected by the dominant culture? He says the potential changes in a knower go beyond um, what we would consider intellectual and physiological. So it's not just you know maturing and getting intellectual uh, indoctrination, because he's saying that actually can become a problem. So our ethics, the ethics we live by, not merely the ethics we profess, our ethics shapes our capacity to know. Knowing, then, is a function of our compassion, our practice of love, compassion, ethics, virtue. And that can seem shocking, because it, we might imagine, well, hey, look, the scientists, they either know what they're talking about or not. And Huxley is saying, no, but we really understand this principle that knowing depends on the process we come to know. You just can't know certain things without a telescope. And you also can't know certain things without a fully compassionate heart, without a certain tranquility of mind, without certain kinds of meditative experiences and philosophical training just not going to be the same. And that's very hard for us to understand. We just can't think, why would my, the quality of my spiritual life affect my epistemic situation, we would say in fancy terms. That means what I, what I can know. Now, some of us think that that sounds obvious, but really we might have to think deeply about the holistic implications and demands this would make. Now, Huxley continues, and this little bit is also really good. There's two more pieces that are nice. So he says, quote, What we know depends also on what, as moral beings, we choose to make ourselves. Practice, in the words of William James, may change our theoretical horizon, and this in a twofold way. It may lead into new worlds and secure new powers. Knowledge we could never attain, remaining what we are, may be attainable in consequence of higher powers and a higher life, which we may morally achieve. To put the matter more succinctly, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the same idea has been expressed by the Sufi poet, Rumi, in terms of a scientific metaphor, the astrolabe of the mysteries of God is love. I really like that passage too. An astrolabe is uh, something like the ancient version of GPS and Google Maps at the same time. It, it gave an astrolabe gave an image of the cosmos and helped people find their place in it and navigate. And like Socrates, Aldous Huxley here invites us to appreciate love as the soul's compass as we explore the great mystery. Now let's follow Huxley just a little further because he makes an excellent point and then he gives an excellent analogy. Now first he writes, referring to this book he's put together, quote, This book is an anthology of the perennial philosophy, but though an anthology it contains few extracts from the writings of professional men of letters and, though illustrating a philosophy, hardly anything from professional philosophers. The reason for this is very simple. The perennial philosophy is primarily concerned with the one divine reality substantial to the manifold world of things and lives and minds. But the nature of this one reality is such that it cannot be directly and immediately apprehended except by those who have chosen to fulfill certain conditions, making themselves loving, pure in heart, and poor in spirit. Why should this be so? We do not know. It is just one of those facts which we have to accept, whether we like them or not, and however implausible and unlikely they may seem. In regard to few professional philosophers and intellectuals, is there any evidence 
that they did very much in the way of fulfilling the necessary conditions of direct spiritual knowledge. When poets or metaphysicians talk about the subject matter of the perennial philosophy, it is generally at second hand. But in every age there have been some men and women who chose to fulfill the conditions upon which alone, as a matter of brute empirical fact, such immediate knowledge can be had. And of these a few have left accounts of the reality they were thus enabled to apprehend and have tried to relate in one comprehensive system of thought the given facts of this experience with the given facts of their other experiences. To such first-hand exponents of the perennial philosophy, those who knew them have generally given the name of saint or prophet, sage or enlightened one. And it is mainly to these, because there is good reason for supposing that they knew what they were talking about, and not to the professional philosophers or men of letters, that I have gone for my selections. Okay, so he agrees with Thoreau. As Thoreau wrote, there are nowadays professors of philosophy, but not philosophers. But, but this goes way beyond just philosophers, at least in the academic sense that Thoreau was talking about, that Huxley is talking about. Everybody's a philosopher. If we Philosophy just means how we do things. And so every business person is a philosopher, every lawyer is a philosopher, every politician is a philosopher. Most of them are just really, really, really bad professors of philosophy rather than actually philosophers. We have all kinds of intellectuals and scientists and business leaders who may think they know, or they may seek knowledge. But do we really think that very many of them have done the kind of work that Huxley is talking about, the kind of work needed to be skillful knowers, the kinds of knowers we need right now, knowers of transformative and healing insight into some of the most important things about the cosmos and this world we share, and this mind that we share. Because he's talking about our heart, making ourselves loving and pure in heart and poor in spirit. Do we really have that as, the, as, as a characteristic of the people who lead our culture onward in its pattern of insanity? No, otherwise we would be moving onward in wisdom and in compassion and in grace and beauty and creativity that vitalizes the world, heals the world rather than degrades it. We just, we're stuck. We're sure that being realistic means we have to degrade the world. When I was in the university system, I would sometimes joke with my colleagues that academics try so hard to be rigorous, but in fact they're lazy. And you can see there's this aspiration for rigor in research, and everyone's doing everything. It's very anal retentive sometimes and rigid, but they lack the rigor that comes from a more holistic and robust practice of life, the kind that Huxley's talking about. That's why he's saying, it's, look, I don't, it's not my fault that it, there's this standard you have to meet. It's just the way it is. You have to do certain kind of work on yourself to make yourself the kind of knower capable of knowing these most precious things. And no one's forbidden from doing it. Anybody can do it. Also, no one's forbidden from listening to the sages. Anybody can listen to them and can then also verify what they say. But if you're too lazy to do it, then that's okay. That's, you're not going to know it then. But that will also have consequences for you and for others. For many important questions in our life, we need to do more to find out things for ourselves rather than to satisfy ourselves with beliefs, arguments, textual analysis, and the rest of the standard practices of both the academic world but and also the world at large, you know, the business world, the political world, we have all kinds of claims and ideas, and people believe things with no real reflection, but they think often that they have thought it through. This is the tremendous challenge. People often say outright they've done their research, and one stands baffled what that would possibly mean. And we, of course, we need good dialogue, also good conversation, which is not the same as, as true dialogue. We need excellent spiritual education. No matter our field of expertise, we still need those things. And we also need direct experiment and experience. Rooting 
our exploration in ethics and a vitalizing vision of the cosmos. We have to examine our mind and experience and run the sophisticated experiments the wisdom traditions have bequeathed us. All of that takes inspiration, passion, and effort. And keep in mind, this is part of why the culture keeps us so busy. You know, 100 years ago, how long, I mean, not that long ago even, for a long time now, we have thought that the increasing efficiency of our machines was going to mean that we would be less busy and we would have more leisure, and it has not panned out for us. Why do we have to be so busy? Our machines themselves keep us busy. You know, you have to update this and buy the new that, and we're on and on toying around with machines and trying to get them to work better and lusting after the next one. Why are we running our circles? Why are we so busy? Well, because if we weren't and we started to look at our own experience and inquire and find out whether the wisdom traditions were right about any of their um, uh, teachings, we wouldn't have the culture we have. We wouldn't have this mess because there would be more people who were paying attention and getting intimate with their own reality. Now, Huxley gives us a little analogy to try to help understand why there's a lot of passion and energy might be required. He writes this. This is the last bit. I won't torture you with longer, any more long quotes. These are just really juicy and worth thinking about. But here's where he writes, quote, Nothing in our everyday experience gives us any reason for supposing that water is made up of hydrogen and oxygen. And yet when we subject water to certain rather drastic treatments, the nature of its constituent elements becomes manifest. Similarly, nothing in our everyday experience gives us much reason for supposing that the mind of the average sensual person has, as one of its constituents, something resembling or identical with the reality substantial to the manifold world. And yet, when that mind is subjected to certain rather drastic treatments, the divine element of which it is in part at least composed, becomes manifest not only to the mind itself, but also by its reflection in external behavior to other minds. It is only by making physical experiments that we can discover the intimate nature of matter and its potentialities, and it is only by making psychological and moral experiments that we can discover the intimate nature of mind and its potentialities. In the ordinary circumstances of average sensual life, these potentialities of mind remain latent and unmanifested. If we would realize them, we must fulfill certain conditions and obey certain rules which experience has shown empirically to be valid. So that's really, I think, a lovely passage. Now, we should clarify that drastic, when he talks about these drastic measures, it doesn't necessarily mean what we think. At the very least, it refers to the rupture with habitual ways of thinking, speaking, and acting. We don't have to torture ourselves or turn spiritual practice into some kind of extreme sport. And we may, in fact, do some things that from a certain perspective seem extreme, such as meditating for many hours a day, perhaps in an intensive retreat that might go on for weeks or months or even years. People have wandered around in the wilderness, that they lived the life of mendicants, and spent maybe 10, 12 hours a day meditating in caves, remote places. So those things can seem extreme. But they don't mean that we have to brutalize ourselves. We can meet the conditions of transformative knowing in a healthy way and in a compassionate way. Now, of course, a vision quest in which we have neither food nor water for three or four days definitely can feel extreme. And many ceremonies that we see in uh, certain spiritual traditions, indigenous traditions, whatever they might be, they can bring us to somewhat extreme situations. However, these sorts of measures don't work well if we do them in a manner that puts us in conflict with ourselves, as if we have to fight a war 
against our own heart, mind, body, or world, or war against sacredness, you know, as if we have to battle the sacred to give up its secrets. And people can also go through these extreme measures and come to no insights whatsoever. And that can be surprising. Or no insights that are uh, as significant as the traditions would expect, you know. Because we can go into a cave in the mountains and basically make a nest there for our ego. The main thing to keep in mind right now is that even though we are reality right now, we can stare in front of ourselves for hours on end and not discover the true nature of this reality. When we look at water, nothing about it tells us it's made up of two gases. Why would we guess that water is made of stuff that appears as gases in ordinary conditions, hydrogen and oxygen. And our spiritual life is like that. We use our minds all the time, but we don't know the nature of our mind or the nature of reality. We use reality all the time, of course. We need education and we need the tremendous energy, the passion of a meditative mind, a passionate mind and heart, in order to experiment in ways conducive to transformative and healing insight. The trouble is, well, one trouble is we tend to get comfortable in our lives. We don't arouse enough passion for spiritual or philosophical questions. Whatever passion we have, relatively speaking, goes into starting businesses, getting promotions, branding ourselves, developing all kinds of expertise, doing our taxes, keeping our car and our home in good condition, reading the news, then wanting to distract ourselves, getting on Facebook, all this this energy. From a holistic philosophical point of view, most of our energy either gets wasted, like frittered away, or actively misused. The culture perpetuates itself by either making us too busy and tired to muster passions that could heal us in our world, or provoking in us passions that have negative consequences for ourselves in the world. Now, This general behavior led Socrates and other sages to tell us that we sleepwalk through our lives. It's a thing we can repeat all the time because it's really hard to accept And many of us think, oh no, it's those other people who are sleep. Oh, it's the Republicans, they're sleepwalking. Or those liberals, they are sleepwalking through their lives. Whoever we want to point the finger at. Oh no, I meditate every day, I do yoga. Those other people are sleepwalking. I always remember when when I was in graduate school and some uh, graduate students were talking about how uh, great it is that they were not in the matrix anymore, you know, because they're studying philosophy, so they're no longer in the matrix. And, of course, that's not what Socrates would have said to them. He would have said, no, you're, you're still in it, my friend. You just now at least realize that there is this thing, there is this cave that you might be trapped in, but you have not liberated yourself from it. And so we, have our, we live in a situation where we might have to experience a philosophical thunderbolt to startle us out of this slumber Charles Seif wrote in the journal Science, he wrote, quote, Every once in a while, cosmologists are dragged, kicking and screaming, into a universe much more unsettling than they had any reason to expect. I thought that was a great line. It's not just, I mean, it sounds remarkable, doesn't it? Scientists dragged, kicking and screaming. And we see now that maybe the most recent tidbit is that maybe the particle... uh, Uh, particle physics model, the standard model, might be wrong because the W boson doesn't seem to have the right weight and boy, that will throw everything off. But of course, everyone's going to kick and scream. They're not just going to go gently into that good night of their theory. And of course, the dark matter throws things off or whatever you want to call it. Some scientists don't like that word, dark matter, dark energy. But it doesn't matter who we're talking about. Philosophers, politicians, business executives, so-called thought leaders and influencers... A lot of those people would do way worse than kick and scream if we tried to wake them from their slumber, and and it's very likely we couldn't wake them. At a deep level, and it's not saying that it has to be that way, it's just that we're trying to just accept that, in fact, all of us, all of us have these tendencies, that's all. 
that there's a part that it wants to kick and scream. And Socrates called, called it, you know, 2,500 years ago. That's what he said. You try to liberate people and they'll fight you. And I always t- tell this story too. When I was at a conference and Stephen LeBurge, the lucid dream guy, you know, super nice guy. And I mean, I don't know, maybe I hope there's no terrible stories, but he seems like a really nice guy, did this important research. And he told the story of how in his own dream, he became lucid and he was in a diner and he tried to tell, he tried to tell the, the other dream characters, you know, this was his mind. And he's in this diner and he becomes lucid. So he knows it's a dream. What that means is you, you not, it's not just one of those moments where you say, oh, I must be dreaming. But you, you really, you become awake, fully awake in the dream and you're still dreaming. And so he tried to tell the patrons of the diner, hey, you know, this is just a dream. Did you know this was just a dream? And they got mad. And he had to leave the diner. They got mad and threw him out. And that was his own psyche. I think it's such a good illustration of what we're talking about. And he was a guy who really wanted to have, you know, spiritual insights. And he did all these things with his lucid dreams to try to learn about the mind and the nature of reality. And it's it's really rather humorous in a way. But unfortunately, it has tragic consequences. So it's a, it's a tragicomic, tragicomedy. And so at a deep level... Maybe most of us cling to apparent certainties about what the cosmos simply cannot contain as possibilities. We're just so certain about how things are. They have to be like capitalism. Oh, well, we have to be all be capitalists. We're, we're just so sure that it's no, it's the only, it's the, it may be bad, but it's the best system we have. So this, there's no other possibility for us. We're just that lacking in creativity that this mess that we're in is the best system we could come up with. And, uh, Many of our scientists, politicians, economists, business leaders function basically as metaphysical police and arbiters of the possible. And we listen to them. And because we are so smart, we, we think we're thinking our own ideas, and we agree that, oh, yes, well, capitalism is the only way, or whatever the thing is that we're so sure about, or that Elon Musk is right and we all have to go to Mars, or Jeff Bezos is right and we all have to leave the Earth and live in space. I mean, really? These are the, the, we're going to take their word for it, huh? Because they're the metaphysical police, the arbiters of the possible. Why should they tell us what's possible? Why should we listen to somebody's idea about economics? You know, uh, really? I mean, do first of all, do we know how, uh, what, everything that Adam Smith said? And do we really think he was the great sage of all time to tell us how to organize our entire society? It's nonsense. Why shouldn't we all have to take guidance about what's possible and what we should do? Why shouldn't we all have to take that guidance from nature and from our own soul and from the great mystery itself? And so maybe we should keep in mind that we should, we should not let our ego proclaim what should be possible or impossible. That's a good thing to keep in mind, that maybe, maybe the ego... It shouldn't proclaim to us what's possible or impossible, or as it does, we don't have to listen. Okay, we need to continue this arc and eventually get to the terrifying dream of the great psychologist and philosopher William James. But you can carry some of these thoughts with you and think about what we should think of as possible and what we should think of as misguided and ignorant. When we live in a culture that tells us it's possible to become a trillionaire and have all manner of material wealth, it's possible to have our minds downloaded into a computer, it's possible to colonize Mars or live in vast ships orbiting the Earth. All that is possible, but it's impossible to change our economic system. It's impossible to actually have democracy. It's impossible to live in compassion and cooperation. It's impossible to root ourselves in wisdom. It's impossible to live in harmony with ourselves, other humans, and the community of life we depend on. When we live in that kind of culture, we should pause, really come to a stop, and ask, what's going on? What are we afraid of? 
If you have questions, reflections, or stories of magic and mystery, stories of wisdom and wonder, compassion and courage, creativity and insight, get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org, and we might bring some of those thoughts, reflections, and stories into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.